Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by University of Calgary economist Trevor Toome, who has distinguished himself for his public spiritedness and ability to convey complex economic and fiscal matters to a broad audience. And we're lucky to have him today. We're speaking the evening of November 3rd, hours after the federal government released its fall economic statement. And I asked Trevor to join me to speak about the statement and the numbers that underpin it. Trevor, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and helping us work through today's fall economic statement. Well, it's great to be here, Sean. Thanks for having me. One of my favorite podcasts, Trevor, is Tyler Cowan's podcast, Conversations with Tyler. And a frequent question he asks guests is about what he calls their production function. So let's just start off by asking you, what do you do when you're digesting or analyzing a budget? What parts of the budget do you turn your eyes to first? What helps you carry out your evidence-based analysis? So that's a great question because in any fiscal update that we get federally or provincially or anytime we see a government budget document, they are filled uh, with information, uh, with policy and economic analysis, with political statements as well, right? They are also communications documents. And so there is so much in there. Today's fall economic statement, for example, is nearly 100 pages long. Uh, And the budget earlier this year was well over 300 pages long. And that's not counting a lot of the technical appendices that are elsewhere on the government website. So what I tend to do uh, with fiscal updates or with budgets is I skip right to the end. I skip past a lot of the the framing and the narrative that uh, any government, of course, wants to put in the window. And I jump right to the appendixes. Uh, the appendices. These are the tables of the economic and the fiscal projections that really contain a lot of the important meat. And you can get a lot of insight uh, and information from these tables very quickly. You know, I want to look first at what are the economic conditions that the government is projecting. Often those are informed by various private sector forecasts as well. So what does the economy look like in the coming years? What does unemployment look like? Or particularly important these days, what does the rate of inflation, uh, what might that look like this year and next and so on? And then those feed naturally into many of the important budget uh, items, revenue, tax revenues, GST, uh, customs duties, and so on. How do those revenues change from one year to the next? And how do they compare to what we previously thought those revenues would be? 
And on the spending side, how are major spending items changing? Transfers to individuals, elderly benefits and uh, child benefits in particular, transfers to provinces. This is something that's increasingly uh, important. We just saw many of the premiers, for example, come out you know, advocating for increased health transfers. And so looking at those numbers, how do they change from one year to the next? And how do they compare to where we thought they were? So those tables, you can very quickly get a, I think, of, uh, not quite a comprehensive, but a very thorough um, look at what the financial situation of the government is. I have to ask on behalf of all of your Twitter followers who are so grateful to receive your analysis, not just in the immediate aftermath of a fiscal update or a budget, but on a more regular basis. Do you have pre-existing worksheets that you're building off of or are you carrying out kind of new incremental analysis every time? a government across the country releases some kind of budgetary document. Boy, we're really getting into the weeds of my production <laughs> function now, aren't we? Yeah. So uh, I have a lot of fun with Twitter and trying to visualize data in different ways. And, and most of what I do actually does build on pre-existing code uh, that will either automatically fetch whatever Statistics Canada has put out that day. Uh, or I have some prearranged spreadsheets where it's pretty easy just to pop in a couple numbers and then the figures, you know, can very quickly be, uh, generated. So there's not as much work behind each of the figures as it might at first appear. <laughs> okay. Well, let's move on to the fall economic statement in case we lose, risk losing any more of our listeners. But thanks for that insight. There are different ways to go about getting your analysis and perspective on the fall economic statement. But why don't we carry out our conversation precisely the way that you carried out your own analysis and start with the broader economic conditions in which the fall economic statement was released. Looking at the underlying economics contained in today's report, what struck you, Trevor? So there's two big takeaways, I think, from the economic side of today's update. First, just economic growth in general and, and the unemployment rate. There's a lot of concern here in Canada and in many countries around the world about the potential for recession, either potentially very soon or next year as a result of lots of factors, but high energy prices are a drag on some countries' economic growth rates or high interest rates that we're seeing rapidly being increased by central banks around the world. So what, what does the federal government think is in store for Canada's economy next year? And while they certainly are downgrading their projected growth, they don't foresee in their main projection a recession. They anticipate that growth will be about 0.7% next year. And that's, that's really low and quite a bit lower than the 3.1% that they were previously projecting. And I guess for perspective, you know, a normal rate uh, of real GDP growth might be around 2 uh, percent. You know, I think there's ways we can think about getting that a little higher, but that, that would be something in line with normal. So this is going to be uh, a challenging year, but one that's not in recession, where it's not shrinking. Uh, it's just going to be growing very slowly. And the second big takeaway from the economic projections here are, of course, what's on everybody's mind, and that is inflation. Uh, what does the federal government believe the inflation rate will be next year and the year after? 
And of course, inflation high this year, but here we are in November. So there's a lot of the year completed already, not a lot of uncertainty here. And they think we're going to have on average this year an inflation rate of just shy of 7%. And then next year, three and a half. And so that's still significantly above where we'd like it to be of around 2%, that Bank of Canada target. But by 2024, uh, they are forecasting there a 2.1% inflation. So they think that just based on these projections here, once we get into 2024 is when uh, inflation might be uh, back to normal. And I think both of these economic growth and inflation are particularly important right now for understanding the financial picture of the government because you know while inflation really lowers for you and I and individual Canadians how far our dollar can go uh, inflation does for governments in general and the federal government in particular it means more dollars and i think we also saw that reflected in a big way in the financial numbers that we got today we'll come to that now let me just say in parentheses i think it is to the credit of the government that as part of their economic analysis and in turn their fiscal projections, they produced a series of scenarios in effect to kind of band from what they described as best case to worst case scenario. You know, it seems to me, according to most literature on on economic and fiscal analysis, especially in an era or a period of such uncertainty that that is a kind of best practice. It's something I think the government started in, in the pandemic and it's interesting to see them continue. I mentioned the subject of revenue. Let's take that up now. The fall economic statement markedly upgrades its projections for total revenue, not just in 2023, but across the fiscal planning period. I guess my two questions for you, Trevor, are why? And in particular, in 2023, where I think the the increase in projected revenue is something approaching $30 billion. How common is, is it in your experience to see such a significant in-year change to the revenue projection? Well, here I am in Alberta, where we do tend to pretty uh, often see large in-year revisions up and down to our revenues for, for obvious reasons, oil prices and royalty revenues and so on. But for the federal government, it's actually fairly unusual to see large upward revisions to revenues. You can see large downward revisions when a recession unexpectedly occurs. You know, the fiscal conditions can change rapidly for the negative, but then recoveries are usually more gradual in terms of those revenues. So this stood out uh, to me. I don't I don't uh, know the, the full extent of the historical data here, but it's certainly a larger upward revision than I can think of. And, and we're seeing that in lots of different areas. I, maybe I'll unpack this a bit more in a moment, but I'll just note that corporate income taxes, just for example, you know, have jumped up to levels that we haven't seen since the late 1960s. And so there's, there's a number of important components to the budget that have seen really dramatic increases that you potentially have to go back decades to find anything that comes close. You mentioned in a previous answer the impact inflation can have on revenue. Are you able to discern the kind of relative role that inflation is playing here in, in explaining this marked increase in the government's revenue projections? Yeah, so I think we can get a pretty good handle at how much inflation is affecting revenue. So I guess before diving into the numbers, let's just take a step back. You know, How would inflation affect government revenue as well? First, the GST is a 5% charge on the goods and services uh, that we pay. And so when the price goes up, so too will the amount of GST payments uh, go up. 
you know, of course, it depends on what goods you buy and so on, but that's a tax on the value of the product itself. Uh, another way is that in general, inflation is also going to come with uh, higher, well, higher prices and higher incomes to individuals if they're uh, increasing their wage demands, as maybe we're starting to see uh, in certain sectors right now. And so that's going to come with higher personal income tax revenues. There's also implications for corporate income taxes, whereas profit the nominal value of corporate profits might increase as a result of some of these changes. And that also means higher revenue to the government. So overall, in a, in a normal year, just with some generic increase in inflation, every one point, every one percentage point increase in inflation is roughly $4 billion in additional revenue to the federal government. So that's a good rule of thumb. And so here we are, if we're anticipating 6.8% inflation for this year, you know, that's you know, nearly five percentage points higher than what we um, w- would normally see and potentially therefore generating about $20 billion in additional revenue to the federal government. So that's just kind of some generic um, intuition and some good rules of thumb. There is some offsetting factors for the federal government too, some benefit payments, child benefits, uh, elderly benefits, for example. These are indexed to inflation and they therefore grow and inflation is high and that increases expenses uh, to the Fed. So there is some offsetting um, effects here, but the net effect of inflation on the budget is strongly positive. Now, today, inflation is, you know, importantly driven by lots of factors are at play for sure. But a very important one is energy prices. And when oil prices are high, oil and gas corporate profits are are particularly high, as as we're seeing. And the feds will uh, get about 15 cents of every additional dollar in profit through the corporate income tax system, just because that's the rate that we've uh, chosen, 15%. And so it looks like the largest increase in revenue that we see today with the federal government's budget for this fiscal year is really coming through a big boost in corporate profits, um, oil and gas mining, petroleum product uh, profits in particular. And that's accounting for largely the $23 billion increase in total corporate income tax revenues to the federal government. And that's really accounting for the bulk of the improvement in their financial situation. That's a comprehensive answer. Thanks, Trevor. Do you want to turn the conversation now to the spending side? As you say, there is an interrelationship between the inflation upward pressures on revenue, but then there can be some downward pressures on spending, including the potential rise in debt service charges. So maybe before we get into program spending, because I want to spend a bit of time on that. And I think some interesting analysis that you pointed out today on social media about the trend line of program spending, why don't we just spend a minute on debt service costs? So in kind of a nutshell, help us understand how debt service costs are going up and how much they're going up in light of rising interest rates. Sure. So like anyone, uh, borrowing money comes with a cost. And for the federal government, um, their costs are really determined by what their bond yields are. So of course, they don't walk into a bank and ask for 
thirty billion dollar uh, loan. You know, they they sell an IOU to a willing buyer that says, "I promise to pay you X dollars in the future." And if you believe that promise is credible, then a willing buyer is going to be willing to pay you know, just a little bit less than X. And that gap between what someone's willing to pay for that bond and what the bond value is, is implicitly an interest rate. And the federal government here, if we look at what it costs them to borrow for 10 years, uh, this year it looks like that's going to average about 2.8%. And that's going to rise to about 3.1%, they figure, uh, next year. So a lower interest rate than you or I would be able to access uh, typically, uh, but higher rates than they were previously anticipating of only about 2% if we go back to what the budget was last year. And so we're having an increase in effectively the cost of borrowing for the federal government, and that's going to increase the amount that they have to pay to service uh, that debt. And it looks like this year, the increase in, in debt charges to the government are just shy of $8 billion. And next year, that's going to grow uh, to be about $10 billion higher than we previously thought. Uh, and they were, of course, going to grow because of some of the additional borrowing that we're doing. And so these rate changes uh, do have a pretty meaningful effect on the overall government's budget uh, situation. But I suppose... For those listeners who want to contextualize what these increases in debt service costs mean, well, it is material. It's still, as I understand it, in relative historical terms, still low as a share of overall spending or overall revenue or whatever metric you use to talk about debt service costs. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so I'd say that is indeed fair, and there's a lot of ways you can look at it. I mean, if we go back to the 90s, roughly one-third of the federal budget was debt service costs alone. And so, I mean, it's night and day compared to where we were there in the middle of the 1990s and a little before then. So right now, it looks like uh, debt service costs for this current fiscal year uh, are going to be a little around 1.2% of Canada's economy, rising to about 1.5% uh, next year. Or if we want to think about these debt charges as a share of revenue, like how much of each dollar of revenue that the federal government gets is being used up in these debt service costs. And, and next fiscal year, they're projecting it'll be about 9 a little over 9%. So roughly 9 cents of each dollar brought in by the government will need to be used to service uh, the debt. And, and that's certainly higher than where uh, we were, uh, but lower than these kind of historical highs that we saw a few decades ago. And then gradually over time, uh, these debt charges are, are projected to uh, decline relative to both the economy and the overall government's revenue. So I'd say that just kind of based on that alone, we shouldn't have any short-term sustainability concerns for the government, you know, but there still is a lot of uncertainty out there. And if a recession occurs, you know, that'll just mean larger deficits and higher borrowing, lower future rates of economic growth or federal policy changes. You know, I think one thing that we've seen, um, certainly through the pandemic, and that's fair enough, but even prior to the pandemic, lots of changes to the government's own expenditure plans really ratcheting up uh, from what they were previously projected to be. And I think that's 
almost surely going to happen in the coming years as well as we see pressure in, in several areas for increased, um, say, social program spending, also military spending that was not reflected in, in some of the numbers that we got today. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Just in that vein, if listeners are interested in the point that Trevor raised, I'd encourage them to read Andrew Coyne's column in response to today's fall economic statement, where he documents that tendency for, as out years become in years, the projected program spending number tends to go up substantially, which you know may be a criticism of the government or it may be a criticism of the budgeting process and the way in which we project out. You know, I note, for instance, that in the fall economic statement, for the first time in a long time, we have within the fiscal planning period a projected surplus in 2027, 2028, which I, I suspect, you know, reporters and others will be drawn to. But Lord knows there's a lot that can happen between now and 2027, 2028 that will impact that eventual fiscal outcome. One of the key factors, of course, will be program spending. And before we look ahead, let me just ask you, Trevor, about how to think about program spending and incremental program spending in the context of inflation. There's been a lot of demands on the government, including from opposition parties and and other voices, to in effect, introduce new spending in the name of helping households deal with the impacts of inflation. The government has taken some steps over the past several months and indeed in today's fall economic statement. What's your kind of sense? Are the steps that the government has announced thus far sufficiently targeted so as to avoid contributing to a kind of overheating of the economy? In effect, has Ottawa found the right balance or is what it's doing actually risk making the job of the Bank of Canada more difficult in terms of bringing inflation under control? So that's a that's a tough question. I think there's a lot there to unpack. I mean, when when I think about the relationship between inflation and government finances, we've kind of talked about the the one direction, inflation to government finance. But what about the other? I mean, fiscal policy uh, is an important factor that influences the overall macro economy. And if I want to think about whether fiscal policy is adding to or subtracting from overall aggregate demand for goods and services, then, then that's something that can help me think through whether or not fiscal policy is, is adding to uh, inflationary pressures or not. And often this comes up in the context of whether fiscal policy is, quote, tight or loose. And I guess, I guess you recommended uh, listeners check out Andrew Coyne's column. Well, I'll recommend they check out your column from uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was yesterday or earlier this week on whether or not federal fiscal policy is tight or not. And when I think about tight versus loose, I think, are we 
raising more revenue as a government than we are spending. So I think that's a very simple go-to definition here. And so if you're running a deficit, then the government is adding to the overall demand for goods and services, which increases uh, pressure on, on prices to rise in, in general. Now, we are seeing that the deficit is shrinking. Uh, so I guess you could say we are tightening relative to recent years, but still not at the point where I think it would be fair to say that it's tight. Um, but w what about the new measures and whether or not that's making the Bank of Canada's job harder? Well, in the fiscal update here, we had just, just a couple new measures to address uh, uh, affordability challenges that inflation creates, and, and neither of the, the big ones there were actually new. So one is doubling the GST credit. You know, that's one where if you qualify for uh, GST credit, then you'll notice that your quarterly payment uh, is going to be double uh, what it normally is, and that'll happen twice. So it's kind of a, a six-month doubling of the GST credit, and that's about $2.5 billion. And that's not large relative to Canada's overall economy. And I think another way to think about that $2.5 billion is the additional GST revenue that the federal government is getting from inflation. They don't actually report it in the update, but a good best guess for me is that it's about $2 billion in additional GST revenue. So they're taking just a little bit more than the windfall that they're getting from inflation through GST and then giving that back to lower income Canadians. And, you know, I don't actually have a big um, concern with that. I think the macroeconomic implications will be fairly minimal and it, it, it does provide some direct support to those who are particularly strained. Uh, from rising prices and our current high rate of inflation. And so that's, you know, I think that's okay. I think the broader question, though, is to what extent has fiscal policy recently, like not just this year, but um, I think many point to fiscal policy as a potential contributing factor to the very inflation that we're seeing now. This is going to be something that people research for years. And so it's really something where I can't, um, put a firm number on it, but the, the International Monetary Fund, for example, does these regular global um, economic outlooks and some really good analysis in there. And they they did their look at the relationship between unexpected changes in inflation relative to their own past projections and the size of government uh, fiscal supports through COVID. And at least among advanced economies, you know, not globally, but among advanced economies, they, they could measure a statistically significant relationship between the two. It, it doesn't fully account for the high rate of inflation that we're seeing. So it's not going to get you from two to eight, uh, but, but it's there. And, and at least this early look at the data suggests it's it's a measurable contributing factor. And, and it's something that's going to come with a lag as well. So fiscal policy last year or potentially even the year earlier may still be having an effect on the economy today. And so even though right now uh, total spending is, even in nominal terms, shrinking relative to last year, uh, and that's going to mean that fiscal policy today is not going to further add to inflationary pressure next year uh, or the year after. I think there's there's something to be said for fiscal policy in general being a factor behind inflation today. 
and some of the measures that we're seeing today in response to that high inflation, you know, on balance, I, I don't think are going to add much more to it. That's a lot of great insight. I just say in parentheses, you know, it seems to me the broader issue raised will be the subject of debate for a long time. You know, my personal inclination has been, you know, in the past several months that, you know, in hindsight, we overreached in response to the pandemic. And if you were to do it again, you would have adjusted downward the magnitude of support. But I was listening to a podcast, Ezra Klein had Matt Iglesias on, and he said something that stuck with me. He said something like, you know, we didn't know the nature of the COVID challenge. And so the overcorrection, which has contributed to some extent to what we now face, was worth the trade-off. That even knowing that it was probably going to produce inflationary consequences down the road, you would have probably still done it. As you say, I think one of the challenges is I don't think we fully understand the kind of broader supply context and how all these various things interacted. But as you say, this will be something that no doubt will be the subject of debate for a long time. Yeah. People still make careers today examining aspects of the Great Depression. And so it's it's likely to be the case with this uh, a shock as large as 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 what COVID was. I, I guess to that last point that you mentioned, I uh, I do think it's important to uh, remember that hindsight is twenty twenty. I think, yeah, with what we know now, I think it's fair to say that the fiscal response in many countries could have been smaller, still provided effective level of support through the pandemic uh, at a lower overall uh, cost. Now, at the time, if I were to dial the clock back to March, April 2020, when we're rolling out some of these policies, there was no credible way we could have known that both our uh, development of the vaccine would be as quick as it was, that the economic recovery through 2021 would be as strong as it was, getting kind of back very quickly, and now even exceeding the employment rates that we had prior to the pandemic. So lots of uncertainty. Uh, at the time. And I think, you know, on balance, people will differ in their, you know, you know, risk, how they evaluate that, but erring on the side of too much, it's probably where I'd come down. And monetary policy too. I think it's quite clear that in retrospect, uh, we should have been tightening earlier. And uh, now we're seeing some catch up being played by, by central banks, but monetary policy is, you know, it's hard at the best of times because it comes with this long uh, and variable lag, we say. So it tends to take about a year and a half, potentially two years to, to fully affect economic activity. And so the central bank needs to be thinking, where are we two years from now? And then making decisions based on that. And you know, through the tail end of 2020, I don't think there's, uh, there were reasonable or credible uh, expectations that 2021 would have been as strong as it was. And so they would they were making decisions anticipating a lot more weakness than actually occurred. And yeah, it's a mistake in retrospect, but it's, I think, not quite right to characterize it as a mistake at the time, even though there will be lessons learned from this experience. We've talked a bit so far about the extraordinary spike in spending in response to the pandemic. But I think one of the most interesting points of analysis that you've identified just uh, in the few hours since the Polycomic statement was released is that program spending is going to remain persistently high through the fiscal planning period. And by high, I'm not making a kind of normative judgment, you know, how 
big the government ought to be, but simply that government will remain larger as a share of the economy well after the pandemic than even it did before the pandemic. Do you want to unpack that and maybe even speculate about what you think is behind that? Sure, sure. Happy to. And, and so this is one of the ways of looking at the size of government that I find uh, quite useful. You know, it's not the only way to look at it, but if you look at a government's program spending as a share of GDP, then what you're doing is effectively uh, measuring what share of economic activity or what share of goods and services is being accounted for by by government programs, uh, loosely speaking. And so at the peak of the pandemic there in, in 2020, we had about 28.3% of GDP accounted for by program spending. And that is outside of World War II, just way higher uh, than any other year. Can I just interrupt for one second? Trevor? And that's because there's something happening on both the numerator and the denominator in that case, right? Exactly. So when the economy shrinks, if government spending doesn't change, then naturally the ratio of spending to GDP is going to go up. And so th these things can move up and down for reasons that go beyond just uh, just policy choices. And actually, that's a really interesting point. So I'll put a pin in that and then <laughs> loop back to that in a second. But back to program spending as a share of GDP. So this year, it's looking like we'll be a little bit above 16%. Uh, of GDP. And that, that itself is a high number. You have to go back just for perspective to about 1993 uh, to find uh, a year where we have a comparable uh, level of spending. And next year, the government's projecting about a little less than 16%. And that brings us to where we were at the peak of the financial crisis when the 2009-10 stimulus was being rolled out there. But then in the out years, so if we go to the end of the projection by the government, they're looking at overall program spending that I estimate to be about 14.8% of GDP. So it's come down a lot uh, over this projection horizon. But even that, that number there, 14.8, is higher than uh, where we were pre-COVID back to the financial crisis. And if you if you average up all the years between say 2000 and, and 2019, then you get about 13 and a half percent. And so we're about a little more than one percentage point higher uh, by 2027 than um, I want to say normal than what we typically observed um, for the two decades prior to COVID. Oh, and, and I guess you asked about what what might be behind that. So there are a couple key drivers. And I think one of these key drivers is just going to become increasingly important over time. Uh, and that's elderly benefits. You know, the amount the federal government is spending on old age security, on the guaranteed income supplement, for example. Last year, we spent uh, just over $60 billion on elderly benefits. And by 2027, they're projecting that to reach almost $100 billion. So a pretty large increase in those elder, elderly benefits. And that's, of course, because we have an aging population and more people qualifying for those benefits. And so by 2027, nearly one-fifth of the entire federal budget will be accounted for by these elderly benefits. And you know that's up from about the 15% or so that we saw prior to COVID or the 
a little less than 14% in the, the years prior to the financial crisis. And that's just going to get larger and larger. And so that's an important source of uh, pressure on federal spending. One thing I've been thinking about, not just today in response to the fall economic state, but, but increasingly in the past several weeks, as we've heard provincial premiers demand that the federal government increase health transfers, we hear from international organizations and, and other countries that Canada increase its defense spending to get something approximating 2% of GDP to meet the, the NATO target. There are growing demands for spending on childcare. Even the short-term resources that the government has earmarked are set to grow over time as that program becomes fully implemented. You've mentioned growing demands on elderly benefits because of aging demographics. If we can kind of raise the conversation up a bit, just interested in your reflection on the relationship between our revenue structure and our program spending demands. Do you think, Trevor, there's a need for, you know, I hate to use this word, but a conversation about whether we're bringing in sufficient revenue to meet the various demands that we're imposing on the federal government? Yeah. So, so you're right to highlight all of the the items that you did. I mean, each of these are, are big areas of, of federal spending. Military is one of the larger ministries out there. We also have the uh, elderly benefits and uh, other social programs that are being rolled out for various reasons. And, and each one of those is going to come with important pros and cons that people can, can discuss or agree or disagree uh, over. So putting aside the merits uh, of them, the question is like, are we looking down a, a future for the federal government where revenues don't keep pace uh, with expenditure growth? And based on current policy, right? So of course, governments can change uh, spending decisions in the future. But what we have in place right now, uh, we're going to be having rising uh, spending on, on elderly benefits just because if you qualify, then you receive those benefits. The federal government, just because of its revenue structure, it raises so much from revenue sources that are tied to income and consumption Right, the overwhelming majority of federal revenues come from taxes on income and consumption, and those tend to grow with the overall economy. And if you project out, you know, beyond the six years of this uh, current fiscal update, you try and estimate where might the economy grow over time. You look at demographic projections to estimate where elderly benefit payments might go over time, then the federal government's actually in a pretty strong position fiscally, such that revenues over the very long term are projected to systematically grow faster uh, than revenues. What does that mean for, for federal debt, for example? So we can project out 2040 to 2050, and it looks like within that 30-year time horizon, you might have overall federal net debt levels reach zero, just to give you a sense of how much faster revenues are going to grow relative to uh, overall program spending based on current policy. But the story is very, very different for provinces. You know, They're much more heavily exposed to uh, spending pressures from an aging population way more than the federal government because health costs 
uh, just based on how we kind of currently structure the system, will grow with aging because the the frequency and complexity and therefore the cost of uh, healthcare services rises rapidly as individuals age. And so we might, as a, as a country, be looking at increased provincial health spending between now and the early 2040s that's on the order of about 2 to 3% of GDP, which is equivalent to, you know, each point on the GST is about one-third of 1%. And so you, you know, we're kind of looking at health pressures that are you know, somewhere between six to, to 10, say, points on the GST, just from provincial health expenditure pressures alone. The feds are not exposed to that. Provinces are. And so that's where I think the, the health transfer conversation um, needs to go. Uh, if the federal government doesn't need as much of the fiscal space uh, that it has at its disposal, then then some might point to transferring some of the tax room to provinces. Like the feds would lower their tax rates and the provinces would increase theirs by the same amount structured to kind of keep a taxpayer unaffected to the extent possible, but shifting revenue to provinces. Uh, or the premiers are pointing to the the cash transfer, the Canada health transfer, and they want that to, to grow a little faster. Um, various parties in, in each of the last few elections have raised proposals for the Canada health transfer. So it's a very live issue. The, uh, the Bloc Quebecois, for example, uh, suggesting that health transfers be allocated as a function of elderly populations rather than total provincial populations. Or the Conservatives in the last election uh, calling for uh, 6% per year growth in health transfers for, if I'm not mistaken, I believe a, a decade is what they were uh, proposing. And so that's one way of transferring financial resources from the federal government to provinces, like just literally through cash transfers. And yeah, historically in Canada, you know, federal provincial transfers change sometimes dramatically as, as economic and um in this case, demographic pressures change. And our current system is not really well set up to handle the pretty large demographic change that's coming. Uh, so I think we need more than, than a conversation around what we do. Uh, we've been experiencing the pressures from an aging population now for almost a decade, right? The baby boomers, it's not like they will be retiring. They, they have been now for many years. And uh, I think we need to do a, a serious look um, at at these transfer arrangements, uh, but also at healthcare itself. Now, this is far beyond my area of expertise, but I think it's pretty clear that the, the current system as it's just structured right now is under some intense strain. And I think we need to have a, a better conversation around healthcare policy uh, in Canada. I mean, historically, at least my own personal observation is that when this topic comes up, reform is you know, not really ever entertained because it's seen as kind of a sacred uh, cow, if you will. And any kind of proposal immediately jumps to Americanization of, of Canadian healthcare when, you know, I think there, there's an important need for reform there just in order for us to rise to this demographic challenge that is currently happening. And then, you know, structuring that along with changes in how we finance it. I think that's kind of what the longer term solution needs to look like. I'll just say two things in response to that comprehensive answer. First, on healthcare, to your point, people are often surprised to discover that when you think about our hybrid insurance model, it's not necessarily 
all that conceptually different than the United States. It's really about deciding what's within public insurance, the generosity of public insurance. You know, one could see a scenario where actually you could produce a better system, a more egalitarian system, and still be able to kind of deliver the underlying principle of universality, which, you know, I think people are rightly committed to. Secondly, on the bigger question of fiscal federalism, it seems to me you've just volunteered for the job of, you know, carrying out a, a role Sirwa commission for the 21st century. And as part of that, it'd be interesting, Trevor, not just to think about the relative fiscal capacity of the different orders of government, but also the ultimate optimal level for different forms of taxation. You know, I've seen some analysis, for instance, that there's a strong case that corporate tax ought to be imposed at the national level and sales and consumption taxes at the subnational level. So, you know, if we were able to open this conversation up, it could move in a whole host of different directions that could produce more efficient outcomes, but also, as you say, ones that ensure that the different orders of government have adequate resources to discharge the responsibilities that we're asking of them. So we'll talk about your future as the as the chair of a 21st century role zero commission another time. Let's just wrap up. I've you know you've been so generous with your time. It's it's approaching 9 p.m. Eastern. I just want to thank you for doing this public service. Is there anything I haven't asked you? Or any final observations or comments you want to make about today's fall economic statement and and perhaps what it may tell us about the government's thinking as we approach a winter or spring 2023 budget. So you you did note earlier on in our our conversation that the government did some scenario analysis here in in the fall statement, and I think that is important um, not just as an exercise for government to do, but is important for Canadians to think about as well. We're in a time of pretty high uncertainty. You know, it's hard to know what's in store next year. Um, you know, economists are. Famously poor at predicting uh, recessions. You know, sometimes even when we're in one, it's hard to tell. Uh, just, just, um, just as an aside. But these kind of scenario analysis do highlight like what are the consequences of these kind of unexpected shocks. And at least the numbers that um, that the government put out here in their scenario where we do end up in more difficult economic times or recession uh, next year leads to a very different trajectory of finances for uh, for the government. And that's also something that I think we need to think more about, um, not just in terms of government finances, but in terms of lots of aspects of our, our, our own lives, but economic life in general, that how do we think about policy in a way that's resilient to unexpected shocks? Um, and so planning for those shocks is part of it, right? And in order to do that, you need to kind of do these scenario analyses. But I think there's a lot more we can do to better prepare ourselves um, to be ready for these unexpected shocks uh, to come. And I guess, you know, that's a lesson beyond just the federal government. I think a lot of provincial governments as well. And and maybe I'll, I'll loop it back here to Alberta in this update today, we had the federal government projecting oil prices remaining above $80 a barrel for years to come for the foreseeable future. And that's going to create just enormous revenues to the government of Alberta, but risky revenues that could evaporate in a moment. Um, and so we also need here in Alberta and provincially need to, to think about 
incorporating resilience uh, in the face of uncertainty more explicitly in our uh, fiscal and economic planning. Uh, wise counsel, and this has been a wise conversation. Trevor Toom, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.